0: For those of you listeners who are on an investment committee, do you happen to know when your investment policy statement was adopted? Or how about the last time it was reviewed and updated? It's amazing how many organizations come to us with investment policies and even spending policies that haven't been adjusted in five years, 10 years, maybe ever. So here's the thing, many of the expectations that are set forth in these policies reflect a time over the last decade when stock returns were particularly high. Volatility and inflation were unusually low, and the fact is we don't expect to see the same types of returns or the same environment over the next decade that we did in the last. So organizations really should be rethinking and perhaps reworking a number of their strategies, including their investment and their spending strategies. So of course, if we're talking nonprofits and foundations, we're talking about policies, and then we're talking about implementation of those policies. So I'm very glad to have two experts here today to talk through this with us. This is Inspired Investing, where we inform and educate organizations and individuals who strive to invest purposefully with and for a mission. Hi everyone, I'm Claire Gola, and I'm head of Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services. Today, I'm excited to be joined by two esteemed guests all the way across the country. The first is Jeanette Burke, who after over 20 years as a partner in the nonprofit practice of a major national public accounting firm, joined the leadership of Cordia Partners. She's joining us from DC, and Cordia provides outsourced accounting, technology consulting, and business advisory services. Our second guest is our very own Alex Shaloff, who is a co-head of investment strategies for Bernstein. And Alex is also our veteran head of alternative asset strategies. And he is joining us from LA. So thank you both so much for being here. Welcome. Thanks
1: for having me.
2: Yeah, it's nice to be here.
0: Great, thank you. So let's start off by setting the stage here with some statistics. Alex, I'll start with you. So over the last three years, as I alluded to just a moment ago, global stocks have delivered really strong returns, annualized returns of over about 12%, coupled with unusually low volatility. But over the next decade, our forecast is nowhere near as rosy. We're looking at returns that are just over maybe half of what they were over the last decade. And we'll probably have to weather some more volatility to get there. So, real small question to start. <laughs> Why don't you share a little with us about what's changed in the environment?
2: Yeah, Claire, there's a few things that have changed. I think the, the primary one is interest rates. Interest rates are very, very low around the world. And so, from a platform, uh, it's very hard to generate solid returns with interest rates as low as they are. It's likely to be a headwind for most investors. A second Part of our forecast involves the levels of volatility that you talked about. Uh, while it might have seemed to have been very easy to be an investor over the last few years and generated these great returns, it's been really tricky to navigate the bouts of volatility that have popped up now and again. So because volatility is heightened going forward, we view that as a headwind for growth. We view interest rates as a, a second a hurdle, obstacle, if you will, that the markets have to get through. And the third one I'd add in is the fact that the markets have gone up so much over the last few years has really created an elevated, valuation environment. It's really hard to generate big returns going forward when your entry point involves such lofty valuations.
0: Okay. And so that's helpful. I mean, there are these three key points here. So why does that matter for our clients?
2: Well, if you think about investment committee members, for example, you know, they've really had whatever you put money into over the last few years has worked. Mm -hmm. There hasn't had to have been any challenge. It hasn't been hard. I don't want to say that it's been easy, but it certainly hasn't been hard because every time you get together for your quarterly meeting, you look at your investment report and you say, wow, we made made more money last quarter. And other than (laughs) a couple of bumps in the road along the way, the last few years have been really profitable. The next few years, as you alluded to, It's going to be tricky.
0: Yeah. I think it's tough to have that conversation with committees when, as you mentioned, it's been relatively smooth sailing for a while. We do see committees tend to start to get, I would say, a little bit complacent, right, with those quarterly reports saying, yep, we earn more money.
2: There's no call to action. Typically, as from a committee perspective, something has to go wrong before you take action and you know think about asset allocation decisions whatever you decided to do it's worked and you've certainly jumped over from a return basis over the last few years, you've gotten returns that are much better than what your spending levels have been. Yeah. So it's been kind of a rising tide lifts all ships. But again, that's not what it's going to look like going forward.
0: I think one of the biggest challenges too with committees is that whenever anything is decision by committee and the committee meets quarterly and these are really busy people, right? That when you're asking for or recommending something proactive, it takes a long time, right? So all of these decisions in order to implement them take a long time. So whereas it may have been just proactive recommendations on our part or from the part of trusted advisors early on, by the time it actually gets implemented or by the time the committee really wants to sit down and do something about it, that's when sort of that call to action needs to have happened already. So it's challenging. Jeanette, you see this quite a bit, I know, working with so many different types of organizations from the implementation perspective. As Alex said, look, it wasn't that hard to deliver returns where an organization or a foundation could actually meet their spending needs and potentially maintain their risk-adjusted return over time looking back. But of course, looking ahead, organizations are probably going to have to do some things differently. So are there some examples or what you're seeing out there in terms of best practices uh, or maybe what to do or not to do in terms of this environment looking ahead?
1: Sure. So what they need to do, like any good organization, is plan. And to your point, Uh, Alex, not just meeting quarterly to go over the returns. Their advisor needs to work with them, and they need to have enough savvy investment committee people on that committee to look forward to the future and say, okay, if we want, most organizations want to continue to contain their spending policy and not reduce it because the returns of the market have gone down, Uh, most aren't going to reduce that. So hopefully they, one, don't panic, and they can work with their advisor to look at the historical returns. Most do the level you're talking about, haven't spent all that money. And that's, you know, why you're raising most of the money and making the big returns so that you can have those to continue doing all the good charitable work when the market has downturned a little bit. So I agree with you that most organizations uh, don't spend enough time on their investment policy. It sits around and collects dust and it, you know, especially for some very large endowments. It needs to be something that has to be revisited at least annually, reviewed by the committee, and then really turn to the experts like the advisors from the investment world and and find out what's going to happen in the future so that they can try to maintain their spending policy. Because most of the time, reducing it means cutting jobs and people and programs and all of those good things. So I would say from my world of what I see, I just think that doing nothing is probably something you don't want to do. Also, most organizations aren't going to budget for the gains associated with investments. Yes, they're going to budget for interest and dividends, which as you say, are are really low right now. So a lot of the time when they're doing their annual budget, they're not really focused on budgeting a number, which is completely understandable. Um, but they have to at least have the conversation when they're budgeting the spending to know that they're going to have input on what the likely returns are going to be so that they can know whether they're going to be in a lost position for that year or one that is a gain a net. Yeah, absolutely. I think stress testing is
0: key, right? So looking at what potential different environments could be and that's something you know that we've been talking about with investors quite a bit is the fact that we do need in today's environment to look at a very wide range of potential outcomes, right, in the near term. So I agree with you that stress testing is critical in terms of planning for the next year. So speaking of that, that's a good segue. So Alex, what are you suggesting or what are we suggesting, right, for organizations regarding asset allocation today.
2: Well, Claire, as you noted uh, in your introduction, some organizations have not yet established a long-term strategic asset allocation. So I would say that would be step one. Assuming that you you do have your, your organization's asset allocation is established, I think that there is an opportunity today to step back. And from a position of strength, right, we've talked about generating solid returns over the last number of years, Really make adjustments to determine if there are things that are missing, to respond to, you know, are there holes in our what we have uh, from an investment perspective, and acknowledge that the world has changed over the last five years, over the last 10 years. And there's investment options that exist today that didn't exist five or ten years ago. And that's specifically in the world of alternative investments, and I would say in the, the world of illiquid alternative investments.
0: So give me an example, Alex, that of sort of liquid versus illiquid.
2: Sure. Well, I think the illiquid ones are, are pretty straightforward. Think of real estate as a great example, right? You buy a building on a Monday, it's not like you can turn around and, and sell it on Tuesday. You're making a multi-year investment in things like real estate or in private equity Uh, any kind of private company investing, private market investing tends to have some illiquidity that accompanies it. More liquid investing would be in the hedge fund space, for example, where despite the fact that your manager might be doing something more exotic, not just buying stocks or bonds that they think will appreciate, but also selling things short that they think will suffer going forward. But those tend to be in, in public markets where liquidity is more readily available. And so you don't need to be illiquid to invest in alternative investments. There are certainly areas of the market where it's required, where we're really because of the asset class itself, you need to take on illiquidity. But there's lots and lots of more liquid uh, alternative in investments that exist as well.
0: Yeah, that's great. In terms of that sort of broad spectrum of alternative investments, one of the things that I have quite a few conversations with committees about is, and, and where it may be very attractive is with income producing types of alternatives, right? So there are different types. People often say alternatives as if it's sort of one asset class, which we know is not necessarily the case. There are different types of alternatives that provide different benefits, right, to the portfolio. So one of the great things about some income producing alternatives is that tax exempt organizations in many cases, right, don't necessarily have to pay the income tax on those returns. And so you mentioned real estate. Are there other types of income-producing alternatives that that you think of?
2: Definitely. I think that the, um, you noted, the benefit of in the nonprofit space of investing in in income generating strategies is that the tax efficiency, if you will, uh, there's no taxes. And so I think that that's really important. And yes, to answer your question directly, there are a number of different strategies, asset classes, if you will, that generate income that make a great deal of sense for long-term operating organizations. I think of real estate, you could buy a building, but you could also take part in the leasing uh, side of it. You could take part of the financing side of it that would generate income. Um, So certainly within the real estate sector, there's a number of different ways to generate income. In the uh, corporate market, everyone talks about private equity, private equity, investing in companies, but there's also a way to invest in private debt that generates income. So there's a number of different ways to generate income and even in today's environment with very low interest rates, well above what your spending rate would be, uh, required spending levels. So income is definitely uh, an area that we've seen a lot of nonprofits focus on.
0: Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense uh, when you're prioritizing different things or when you're dipping your toe in for the first time to something that might be a little different. So one of the questions that I receive and that many of our advisors receive from committees is how do we gauge how much we should invest in these different types of alternatives or you know, what are some of the pros and cons? And I know, Alex, you've been very involved with leading the, or leading the charge with a model that we have been using at Bernstein. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Certainly. The first order of business in the decision tree is related to the specific investment in a yes-no decision. And then after you decide yes, it's really the question becomes how much? <laughs> right, and I think that one is you know we there, there's been more rule of thumb that have really driven asset allocation decisions over time. Right, 5%, five percent. Let's take some round number. Three percent, five percent, ten percent. It's really just a guessing game. And so what we've done is built a model that answers that question with much more precision. And also, it doesn't just stress test various environments, market environments, but also stress tests what the backdrop would look like for other investments, right? So if going back to real estate, if I say, oh, my real estate portfolio was expected to produce X, but you know, in a bad year, we could be down Y, what would be the conditions that would create that down Y? And how would that affect the rest of the investment portfolio. and in the back of my mind, how would that inf- affect a fundraising environment, for example? So there's a lot of different variables. Our model seeks to capture as many as possible as it relates to the investment side, but I also think it provides a framework for investment committee members to think about the rest of the world outside of the investment space.
0: Yeah, it's really an impressive model. And, and I've seen multiple examples of it. Uh, and one of the things that I've started to use this model for, as well as other forecasts, is when we think about investment policy statements, it really shouldn't just be about what decisions were made, right? It should be about why they were made, right? As a commit as fiduciaries, it's really about that process, that decision-making process, and that you actually went through a process. And so I've actually, and I've I've seen other advisors attach, you know, some sort of data points to help provide that institutional memory over time. Because as we know, committee members rotate off, C-suite members, you know, rotate off, you know, over time. And so it's important as new committee members join the board over time that they can see, okay, at this time period, this is why we we adjusted our you know, investment strategy. This is why. We adjusted uh, our our spending policy. It was a proactive measure based on on research, really. So so this type of alternatives model is a great addition to our work with committees. Jeanette, so I'm going to turn to you again because we've talked a lot about the, I'd say the benefits and some of the things that you need to consider like liquidity, but many of the benefits from an allocation perspective with regard to incorporating alternatives, but what about the implementation, right? So you work with all of these different organizations and you really see them at the stage of implementation. Could you share a little bit about maybe some considerations for organizations that are considering alternative investments?
1: Sure, absolutely. I think the first thing is really education and getting them to accept that alternatives aren't a bad thing and a way to diversify their portfolio. We see a lot of clients, and really, unless you've got these you know, college and university level endowments. Many organizations say, "Oh no, you know, we're a nonprofit and that's risky, and we need to stay away from that." And and to some of the things you guys have already talked about today, there is so much that they don't understand. The word private equity, the word alternative investments and hedge funds just sounds bad. And so what I see is many just say, "Nope, um, I understand that we could diversify, but we're not interested." So I think. Um, you know, Bernstein's modeling and actually showing them real results and and why this isn't a, you know, a a terrible risky thing for them to take on is super important. I think once you get your investment committees, unless they're really savvy and oftentimes they're not educated, then you sort of are going to stop them from even kind of thinking about that. But you also need to be aware that for alternatives, in a lot of cases, you're going to get K-1. So organizations that are December 31 year-end, not all nonprofits are, but you know whatever year-end that they're on may likely not correspond with the company's year-end that the alternatives are invested in, and therefore you're not going to get the information you need to get final closed-out financial statement numbers in order to be doing the organization's audit. And some don't want to have it held up for K-1s where they you know, have to adjust to the actual returns, which may not be uh, known for three to four or five longer months um, at the end of an organization's fiscal year. So I've seen a lot of them sort of get out of the alternatives because they don't want to to mess with it. Also, if you are getting K-1s from these alternative investments, you are going to need to file a separate, in many cases, a separate 990T. So that's you know your unrelated business income form. And a lot of them just don't, again, feel like messing with that form. So I think Unless the organization is really significantly invested in alternatives, some of them say, "Well, why should I go the, through the administrative hassle for you know one percent of the portfolio and, and stuff like that that may be an alternative?" So I, I really think it all comes back to an education and showing them whether it's modeling or strategic planning, as opposed to just making the investment policy. You know, not about what we're, our choices are, but you know what we're planning to achieve and why these things are important. But uh, really providing more of an education because I just think there's still that stigma out there that you just tend to want to stay away from them, even though the ultimate goal of your investment portfolio and your strategy is to be able to kick off. As much income as possible to sustain the organization as an entity and to be able to kick off income dollars to do all those great charitable things that the organization is is in business to do. So I think it's a trying to balance not just the investing side, but uh, more of the strategic planning to get them to to come to terms with with doing uh, work in the alternative environment because many, many organizations are, are doing that, but they're slow to come on board, I think.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, You hit on a number of important points and and examples that I've seen play out uh, with a number of different organizations. And so one of the things that I'm hearing you say that is really critical, if you call it education or strategic planning, it's really about communication right, from the beginning and doing that due diligence. Because I know a lot of organizations out there have very lean staffs, right? And they have been doing the same reporting and it's coming to the committee at the same time period in the same format every quarter or every month. And you throw in some less liquid, uh, you know, types of investment services in there and there's a, a lag in reporting, right? And so what does that mean? So I think that there's this optimal allocation and then there's the right decision for the organization. And does the organization really have the ability, right, internally to, and the desire, to deal with uh, some of the changes, the, the you know lag in reporting, additional, for instance, you know the K ones. You know, Alex, I'm going to ask you a question on this too, because with regard to K ones and unrelated business taxable income, how are you advising clients? Are there other opportunities where they could engage without necessarily having to go the route of K ones and, and possibly that additional work?
2: Yeah, I think look, there's a number of alternative investments that only manage strategies that issue K1s and have a potential for UBTI, that's full stop. However, there is a a growing landscape of investment ideas where organizations such as ourselves understand the importance of avoiding UBTI, understand the difficulty that K1s produce, and no pun intended, have created alternative strategies to alternative strategies that are more uh, manageable that would produce timely tax reporting, uh, timely valuations, and have various blocking mechanisms for UBTI. So you should think about it. You should ask the question, but recognize that there's a number of solutions in place to address those concerns.
0: Yeah, I think that speaks to the comment you made earlier, Alex, about the fact that our industry has changed, right? I would say there are a lot more opportunities for investors out there than there may have been when an in investment policy was first drafted, right? So so it, it warrants that, I would say, that due diligence from the committee, so thank you. I'm gonna wrap up here actually with a question uh, that many committees ask about, which is fees, because uh, one of the, obviously and rightfully so, a fiduciary should be concerned with the fees that they're paying uh, any investment manager. So a number of these types of services do come with some higher fees than, say, your you know traditional sort of long-only stocks or bonds. Alex, do you see ways out there that you could mitigate um, some of the costs of these different types of strategies?
2: Yeah, I think, Claire, you made the point of the industry has changed to be more cognizant of the issues that are important to investors in general, but investment committees specifically and investment committee members. And I think fees are always top of mind. And so where maybe five or 10 years ago, the mantra was, oh, it's worth it. Just trust me. Now, I think the game has changed to where when we walk in to talk to a committee, we talk about a fee budget. And where do you want to try to manage expenses to be the lowest possible uh, level uh, because there's limited ability to add value? And where are higher fees justified? And what is the return opportunity or the uh, volatility management? side of it. So I think understanding this concept of a fee budget, of what do I want my total fee load to look like for a portfolio of a given size, and then reverse engineer a solution that encompasses traditional strategies, alternative strategies, liquid strategies, illiquid strategies, that's incumbent on the advisor. That's what you are paying for hopefully professional management of a portfolio is to have a recommendation, a proposal, if you will, that captures everything that your organization is trying to accomplish, but does so through the lens of fees.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. Thoughtful advice. Absolutely. Thank you. So we're getting to the end of our time here. So just to sum up, we've covered quite a bit. So we're looking at a market environment ahead where nonprofits and foundations are likely going to need to do some things differently for financial sustainability. Um, One strategy is, of course, uh, integrating investments with different sources of return and risk and different return patterns uh, than their traditional sort of long-only or publicly traded stocks and bonds. And of course, like any investment, this wide range of alternative strategies comes with pros and cons. So the key is to consider both the implications of the allocation, as well as the implementation, and to communicate among investment advisor, board, staff, audit team, to make sure that you don't have any surprises at the end of the day and that you have an optimal experience. So Jeanette and Alex, uh, I thank you so much for joining us today. This is a really helpful discussion, and I appreciate your
1: participation. Absolutely.
2: Our pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. And thank you everyone for listening. If you'd like to learn more from Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services, please see the link to our blogs in this episode's description. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please go to the iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and rate us. Also, please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com and be sure to find us on Twitter at P W M. Thanks, everyone. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.